0: Section 8 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams-Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 8. The Netherlands Groningen, Friesland, Drenthe, Oivissel, Gwilderland, Utrecht, North Holland, South Holland, Zeeland, North Brabant and Dutch Limburg are the names of the several provinces which lie north of Belgium and west of the Rhine, and today from the independent political entity known as the Netherlands, sometimes as correctly called Holland. South of these lie the provinces of Antwerp, Brabant, East Flanders, West Flanders, Hainaut, Liege, Limburg, Luxemburg, and Namur, which constitute the various elements of the Kingdom of Belgium. Although the geographical significance attached to the names of these provinces has remained fairly constant, the political meaning of the term Netherlands, Pays Bas, or Netherland, has often changed as the provinces have been united, separated, and united again in shifting combinations. Under Charlemagne, all formed part of his vast empire. After the death of the great emperor, there took place some parceling out of minor territories according to the custom of a feudal age so that many small countships and duchies became hereditary in the families of a new nobility at the same time the cities achieved an early independence and the vigour of their growth already indicated the quality of the commoner with whom the noblemen had to deal from the beginning of the eleventh to the end of the thirteenth century a strong line of counts of holland aided in the development of the northern portion of the netherlands after the year 1299 a change took place and the long struggle between zealand and holland seem to paralyze the national life. It was not until Philip the Good appears upon the scene that the various territorial elements of the Netherlands are sufficiently united to constitute an important political aggregate, a kingdom suitable for comparison and study, side by side with other European nations. Philip the Good, so called of Burgundy, inherited Flanders and Antois from his mother. He bought Namur, seized Brabant, Antwerp and Limburg, he laid claim to the inheritance of the northern provinces also, and his efforts in this direction were no less successful. Jacoba, the last heir of the old house of Hainaut, was compelled to cede her rights over that territory as well as the counties of Holland, Zealand, and Friesland. Thus Philip of Burgundy became one of the most important sovereigns in Europe, chiefly because of the value of the low countries, which at that time could be matched for the wealth of their manufactories and commerce. This was the beginning of the unification of the Netherlands. Two generations later, they passed and blocked the House of Habsburg by the marriage of Maximilian with Mary of Burgundy. They continued to be united two generations longer until the northern provinces, under the leadership of William the Silent, formed themselves into an independent republic known as the United Netherlands. The southern provinces remained a dependency of Spain. At the parting of the ways, I shall follow the fortunes of the northern division because these formed a nation, politically autonomous, and these provinces represent virtually the same geographical area now included in the Kingdom of the Netherlands. During a short period only, this summary must also treat of conditions found in the territories now called Belgium and Burgundy. Although the northern provinces were for a time theoretically a republic under stateholders of the House of Orange, there seems no good reason for breaking the continuity of the tabulation of this account even though it may be my purpose to measure the influence of royalty. The princes of the House of Orange were virtually kings. Their origin, not strictly royal, was nearly so. The marriages were either with the most important noble families, or that part of Europe, or with actual reigning sovereign lines. The title is nothing. The point is they formed a dynasty of rulers, stateholders, allied by blood with other dynasties of Europe. There are three periods when this quasi-royal line became broken. A republican form of government fills in three gaps which occupied the years 1650 to 1672, 1702 to 1747, and 1759 to 1776. Thus opportunities are to see how well or how ill this portion of the world could carry on the experiment of taking care of itself without the royal leadership. Such definite republican interludes occurring in governments for the most part monarchical are of the highest value in a negative way to one interested in measuring the potency of the kings themselves. Returning to a view of the Netherlands at the time of Philip of Burgundy, 1419-1467, one sees a very flourishing state of affairs, a condition which has persisted in a general way for a number of centuries, trade, commerce, fisheries, and the arts of fabrication here made an early start. There must have been a very high level of intelligence and industry in the make-up of the middle classes all through this section of Europe. Even from the earliest historical times, a broad distribution of wealth had been enjoyed. Here the towns and cities soon achieved importance and independence. Not many nobles ruled over wide estates, or illustrious warriors conquered and built regal power at the expense of their neighbours and rivals. It is true that the nobility remained an important and powerful influence within its home limits. there were no great governing families prior to the burgundian rule nothing to be compared with the plantagenets or the arwenstulfans or the sovereigns of castile aragon portugal and france although philip the good of burgundy found the low countries in a thriving condition it is very certain that he left them even more so and these provinces derived much benefit from the astute policy which characterized the activities of this ambitious prince Philip was called the Good, an unfortunate epithet which every historian takes pains to notice. It is my general impression that the appellation which monarchs have received, given first by their contemporaries and conserved through the ages, are usually very fair summarizations of their traits. But Philip Burgundy was not the Good. He was a crafty, self-seeking tyrant who crushed the liberties of the people and overrode every one who came in his way. He had his good points, however. One of them was a genuine appreciation of the fine arts which led to something far more important than mere luxurious display or pompous court functions. Philip Le Bon always demanded obtained obtained the best, whatever the object might be, a neat little fertile province or priceless altar piece. One cannot help forgiving much to the man who patronised the Brothers van Eyck, founded the wonderful Burgundian Library, and aided in so many ways the establishment of the early Flemish Renaissance. But these developments belong to a side of history that I am not attempting to discuss. It is on account of the immense impetus to the industrial and architectural arts which this connoisseur monarch gave, that his influence became important in its relations to strictly material matters. More and better public buildings, richer and more costly garments, paintings, statues or books, belong, of course, in part two, and our indications of material wealth. This side of history during the reign of Philip has a fine rare glow, with an atmosphere of alluring colour, an aurora which reached for the first time the shores of western europe the loss of political and personal liberty which the commoners were forced to endure does not seem to outweigh at least from the material standpoint the many advantages which the netherlands gained under this master tyrant philip was very clever in the diplomacy of his day and cunningly played england against france he constantly resisted frederick the third and the holy roman empire and hoped to found a great independent kingdom from burgundy to the North Sea. The treaties which he bought were favourable to the province and were followed by a marked increase in commerce and manufacturers. Agricultural development was aided by a wise management of the dykes, the building and care of which was naturally a most important department of public works. Not only was the financial position of the government strengthened, but the increase in wealth enabled the people to bear the heavy taxation with comparative ease, that so one contemporary author supposed that they were in fact more lightly taxed than the subjects of other princes Philip le Bon never quite gained the ambition of his life, but he became at least a king in all of the but name, and certainly in wealth and magnificence outranked the king of France and the holy Roman emperor. Before and after the fall of Constantinople, it was Philip of Burgundy to whom the pope and the western princes turned when the repeated conquests of Mohammed the Second drove Christendom into hysterical fear neither burgundy nor the other western powers offered much assistance when the crisis came but the fact that philip was looked upon as the natural champion shows that this prince had raised himself to an extremely exalted position it would not be too much to say that from the strictly worldly standpoint philip the good was the ablest practical man of his own generation a few more like him in the burgundian line and there might have been no france so called as we should to-day be ready it in its place the history of burgundy the majestic plans of the father for forming a great Burgundian kingdom were destined to be shattered by the queer of his rash and imperious, though brilliant and Norway's interesting son Charles. The epithet of Temerier is usually translated as the bold, but it might with better judgement and vital linguistic property be rendered as the rash or the foolhardy. Charles le Temerier was no 15th century diplomat louis the eleventh of france was and herein lay the difficulty for burgundy european politics were lashed into the maelstrom which finally engulfed the burgundian interests by the sinister and green-eyed conjurer of france the master of the fine art of dealing with enemies it was a mighty duel between france and burgundy but it was as even their contemporaries saw it a battle between the french spider and the burgundian lion the methods of burgundy were as different from those of france as were the tempers of the potentates charles was always frank and chivalrous imperious and above deceit grand and chaotic self-reliant and beyond restraint he fought vainly for his life's idea the reincarnation of the ancient kingdom of the carlovingian luther which he would extend from the north sea to the mediterranean and interpose a broad belt between france and the empire this was also the policy of his father the foundation stones of which had been laid by his grandfather and great-grandfather he is but little remembered to-day how near the Burgundian came near to the realisation of this dream. Philip the Bold, John the Fearless, Philip the bon and Charles the Temerier all worked successfully for a grand Burgundy. Charles overreached the mark and tried to accomplish everything at once. He had furthermore in Louis XI an extremely astute man to outwit, where his forebears had only the insane and weak Charles VI and the mediocre Charles VII for French opponents still it is a question if the netherlands which from the true geographical region whose fortunes are the theme of this chapter really lost more than they gained during the era of charles rash there is much to be said on the favourable side though the many wars were expensive and brought no advantage to the low countries it is doubtful if the heavy taxes were borne with any great difficulty the seat of action being chiefly in switzerland the netherlands were left free to develop their own trades and industries And the vigorous rule of Charles made impossible any chronic the bloody conflicts between the opposed political parties at home, the Hooks and the Cods. During this reign, the already flourishing cities grew in wealth and importance. Fisheries, however, suffered from interruptions and seizures occasioned by French ships of war, which Louis sent to the northward. But even this side of industry, if we are to accept the more modern view of Wenzelberger, progressed rather than declined during the days of Charles the Rash it is but natural that the burgher classes should find their pretensions strongly opposed by such a dominating master and that retrogression in political liberty should be the order of the day as far as this goes we amongst a bit a backward tendency but all things considered it would seem that the years 1467 to 1477 were favourable to the netherlands it was otherwise with the fortunes of burgundy this country reached the Apogees of its power about 1469 lost ground under the reckless career of last duke and when the naked body of charles was taken from the icy shores of a swiss lake the last act of the burgundian drama was over the tragic death of charles the bold caused a profound sensation throughout europe all anxiously awaited the fate of a country left without a master or male heir and discussed the young and still unwin mary the sole inheritor of the wealth of flanders in holland would burgundy and its attachments swing to france or towards the empire eventually mary married the young maximilian and so the House of Austria rose at once to the highest pinnacle of power, and the history of the Netherlands began interwoven with the lives of the Habsburgs. Mary's rule was brief. She died five years after her father, in consequence of a fall from her horse, but already time enough had elapsed to show the effect of transferring the control of this government into the hands of a weak and inexperienced woman. The internal dissensions in Holland which the iron hand of Charles had crushed for a time, again grew rank after his death, and the two parties of hooks and cods renewed their persecutions of each other with a rage and bitterness that reduced Holland to a state of extreme bitterness and desolation. The naval power of the Dutch also suffered a severe blow during this period, losing very heavily in conflict with the French. On the other hand, political liberty, whatever that may be worth, must be weighed on the other side of the scales. It was then that the great privilege, or root privilege was founded this restored parliamentary rights gave the cities and provinces a voice in the government especially in the levying of taxes and the declaration of war although in practice the great privilege soon fell in abeyance and remained ineffectual for nearly a century it is important as experiencing the basic principles on which the dutch republic was afterwards founded the great privilege of fourteen seventy seven is also interesting because it shows that the people of the netherlands were for one, able to take advantage of a weak sovereign and obtain political advance by combined effort. It is difficult to weigh the value of the great privilege against the internal commotion, so the reign of Mary of Burgundy has a doubtful entity. Maximilian of Austria, husband of Mary, acted as regent for the Netherlands from fourteen eighty two to fourteen ninety three, a period of turbulence and decline. Maximilian was a strong character, who at least in after years proved himself to be. But there is little in his regency over the Netherlands to demonstrate royal efficiency. The only thing to be said in his favour is that in the end the rebellions were suppressed. The reign of Philip the Handsome 1494-1506 to was equally contradictory, though in precisely the opposite way. Philip was merely a pretty figurehead, neither important force. His country however enjoyed a distinctly progressive interval during the 12 years of his administration. In 1494, The states lost the great privilege, but it did not make any real difference. There had never been any good results from the democratic movement, experimentally shown to be a failure under Mary and Maximilian. The chief glory was a commercial one. Holland and Flanders were growing. Trade, especially with Spain and Portugal, forged ahead. Here much credit is due to the people as a whole. Good order was preserved and rival parties kept the peace. After the premature death of Philip the Handsome, 1506. Maximilian again became regent, and a year later this official position was relegated to his daughter Margaret. For the next two generations, it is impossible to separate the rule of the emperors from that of their relatives, who as special regents were appointed to govern the Low Countries. Fortunately for the method here employed, this does not introduce any confusion, for the reason that both the emperor and the regents were definitely above the average. So when both are added together, The composite must also be superior or plus. Maximilian, Charles V, Margaret of Savoy, Mary of Hungary, and Emmanuel Philibert of Savoy together form a very strong group. Special consideration must, however, be taken of Philip II of Spain, whose influence begins only at the close of this era. Philip II is an unusually difficult person to place satisfactorily in any scheme, which distributes historical characters into grades for intellectual eminence. The case of Philip the Second will be given more detailed attention later. As far as the others are concerned, it will suffice in a hasty survey like the present to point out that confidence with the array of royal talent occurred a season of great productivity throughout the Low Countries. The more or less combined and interdependent government of the emperors of Maximilian I and Charles V, with the regents Margaret of Savoy and Mary of Hungary, covers 50 years and the era comes to a close with the abdication of Charles V in 1555. As far as the Netherlands are concerned, there can be no doubt, but this age was one of great prosperity. All strictly material affairs joined in the forward movement. All such features of national life as industry, trade, agriculture, fisheries, finances, coinage, house building, as well as the subtle forces which make for international prestige and importance are found progressive antwerp became the first commercial city of the world again it was so large and wealthy that the proud charles declared jestingly to De france as the first of france she paris dans mon gant. there is not much to say on the other side of the question except that the people were governed with rigour and popular liberty necessarily suffered it may be contended that by this beneficent tyranny though it was paid for the latter atrocities and the control of philip ii and elva such may be the case but even if the loss of political liberty be thought to outweigh the commercial and material advance it is not alter the fact that the whole industry of the netherlands during this epoch is just what might be expected as an outcome of the management and expression of the characteristics of three or four people who were in the chief control philip the second had first appointed emmanuel philbert of savoy as regent for his dutch and flemish possessions This distinguished prince did not continue in office except for the first few years 1555 to 1559. there were no important changes during his administration but one sees the smoldering discontent and hatred towards the spaniard which afterwards culminated in the great struggle for dutch independence the hand of philip ii is everywhere to be seen his regents carried out his policy and formed a part of himself an accentuation of that mysterious personality housed in its austere Spanish chamber, yet stretching its influence throughout the world, the character of Philip II is more difficult to grade than it is to understand. Extremely ambitious, industrious, strong-willed, and supplied with a great knowledge of details, all his acts and policies appear to have been in the wrong direction and to have somehow brought, in proportion as they were carried out, just so much injury to that church and state for which he so seriously labored. The Spanish world power, which had been developed and welded together in an unnatural fashion by a few great personalities favoured by genealogical accidents, was bound to go to pieces except under the most masterly control. Holland and the northern provinces of Netherlands were the first to free themselves from the hated overlordship. These form, from the racial standpoint, the district which, of all those under Spanish dominion, seems to have been included the most unnaturally. These provinces comprised almost the same territory as that now known as the Netherlands. So this chapter will follow their special conditions and a little more concern with the southern provinces which remained long under Spanish and Austrian control. The wars which resulted in the Dutch Republic were associated with the great religious questions and the horrors of the Inquisition. By the long procrastinated withdrawal of the Spanish soldiers, the burdens of taxation and appointments of Spanish to high officers, Must be counted among the grievances. The decade and a half which precedes this revolution presents a gloomy picture. It was a period of confusion, of persecutions and uprisings. Thousands of the inhabitants were executed, thousands more left the country and these were the industrious working classes. Commerce of course received a heavy blow and the wealth of the nation probably declined. It is not easy to fix the exact date for the commencement of the Dutch Republic. The independence was not acknowledged for a long time. But the year 1575 seems to mark its virtual, if not its formal beginning, especially if we are interested in the relation of William of Orange to the foundation of political autonomy. It was in the summer of 1575 that Holland and Zealand drew up articles in Union. By it William received supreme command in war and absolute authority in all matters of defence, the control of all money voted by the estate, the maintenance of the laws as count in the king's name, the ultimate appointment after nomination by the estates of all judicial officers these terms accepted william became in spite of their nominal recognition of philip the true prince of the two provinces this does not look like a republic nor do we find such a form of government except in name either during the lifetime of william the or under the regime of his sons maurice and frederick henry from 1575 to 1578, the unsettled conditions continued in the north as well as in the south. But after that, and until the assassination of William in 1584, the northern provinces enjoyed tranquility or were again prosperous, ever gaining more ground on account of the continued decline which the southern or Spanish provinces were forced to endure. Thus the period of William the Silent, 1575 to 1584, was progressive even on the strictly material side. The greatness of its significance lies of course in another direction removed from the present inquiry great interest is felt in the history of the united Netherlands not because by heroic action they formed a republic for this they never did but for the reason that they fought for freedom and that here took place a great conception which has engendered a world-wide idea it was here for the first time that a nation was constructed founded on ideas of religious toleration William the Silent was the first to conceive such an idea, and William the Silent must always remain the pioneer of one of the greatest events of history. William was the soul of the movement. There seems to be no question about this. The delivery from Spanish atrocities and religious persecution could not have been brought about without his aid. They were fighting against tremendous odds. At one time it seemed impossible that the weakened Protestant party could escape annihilation in the revengeful grasp of the mightiest power in the world but the heart of the great prince never faltered even in the hours of darkness william wrongly called the silent really the most eloquent man of his age worked on and by tongue and pen kept alive in others something of that unconquerable fire which was the essence of his own great nature the ordinary mortal knows temporary exaltations the crowd once set in motion grows enthusiastic over its own enthusiasm but a perpetually exalted leader for a forlorn cause is a hard man to find and men like william of orange men who combine with such unusual strength of character conceptual intellectual endowments are so rare that there have been perhaps a hundred such among thousands of millions who were not fortunately for the dutch and for the liberties of the world his second son maurice on whom the burden of leadership fell was a descendant worthy of his father. Maurice was extremely precocious, much as his father had been, and although but seventeen and a student laden at the time of his father's death, it was not a year before he was made Governor of the United Provinces and Stadtholder of Holland Zealand. For forty years Maurice of Nassau was the military leader of the Dutch nation. They still had Spain to deal with and Alexander Farnese was no weak general to match maurice had to overcome opposition within the ranks of his own people as well as that directed by the ire of spain historians consider this member of the family of orange to belong among the greatest military geniuses who have ever lived if we inquire the reasons for this signal admiration we discover that for more than any other reason maurice of nassau takes first grade among the world's soldiers because he like his father was a pioneer William founded a nation based on principles of religious toleration. Maurice initiated modern methods of military entrenchment and produced a revolution in the art of war. Like many other innovations in the military art, the changes which Maurice introduced were opposed to the current idea of what constituted heroism in a soldier. The old men ridiculed his plans. The enemy jeered him as a mere boss of ditch labourers, but before Maurice was 24, he had formed the most efficient army in Europe and had made a new epoch all must needs follow suit and learn his methods or be swept before the irresistible tide he had formed a veritable school of warfare to which flocked the young nobility of france england and germany maurice was not a statesman this side his career was weak but the netherlands fortunately had in john of olden barnevelt a man who grandly supplied this deficiency maurice became the uncrowned sovereign olden barnevelt was a states general himself these two men brought the Netherlands to a celebrated degree of splendour, or at least we may say with, certainly, that glorious epoch for the Dutch people occurred during the leadership. Moreover, arbitrary leadership of two very great men. The quarrel between the two, which finally his old statement his life, stains indelibly the nature of Maurice, but taken as a whole, the impression which the son of the great William leaves on the ages, though not equal in moral grandeur to that of his father, is nevertheless that devoted and cost him prince whether his motives were patriotic or personal and human motives are very hard to fathom his own extraordinary life was attended by a brilliant upbringing of the country which in generosity we must feel that he loved the increased international prestige and expanding commerce which signalised this period continued during the state of frederick henry the youngest of the children of william the silent this prince less brilliant than either his father or his brother was nevertheless very highly endowed and if judged in relation to both war and statesmanship perhaps better rounded than either his singular moderation and well-balanced wisdom were of great benefit in reconciling religious factions it was during his rule that the stead already practically hereditary in the house of orange became such by written agreement the young prince William II (1647-1650), on whom the mantle fell, was only twenty at the time of his ascension. He was a youth of brilliant gifts and gave promise of equaling in genius the illustrious members of his family. Like Maurice, he was proud, warlike, and impatient of rebuke, and like Frederick Henry and William I, his ideas were lofty and comprehensive. Precocious as the others, ambition seemed in him carried to an extreme. William II died aged twenty-four. But, in one way, history shows the effect of his dominating character. Already, the popular voice had grown weak in the presence of such a great spirit. The Netherlands had become virtually an arbitrary monarchy. Aside from this, no important changes took place commercially and internationally. The prestige remained about the same. When William the Second died in sixteen fifty, there was no heir. Eight days afterwards, his widow, Mary of England, gave birth to a baby boy whose career in life was refilled with glory equal to that. Of any of the family one who was to save not only his father's land but his mother's nation as well from the growing greed of france the overreaching methods of the late stadholder had created much opposition and discontent so that a reaction set in and for a time the dutch netherlands came under the form of government called the states which fairly well represents the democratic idea without going into details as to the extent form of government It is sufficient to say that from 1650 to 1672 there was no royal personal leadership and there was much independent local control on the part of the separate provinces. This did not lead to disaster or to a period of marked decline. Trade and industry continued as flourishing as before, but one side only of the national welfare suffered, and that was the diplomatic. The subtle work of Louis XIV, gradually succeeded in placing the netherlands in an isolated position so that she could no longer count on friends or supporters this was a serious matter of light in the formidable and constantly growing pretensions of france clouds began to hang darker and more threatening over the netherlands without a leader her future seemed dubious it was young prince william who saved the day in fifteen seventy two the storm broke the english without a declaration of war tried unsuccessfully to intercept the dutch mediterranean fleet and France at once sent forth to conquer the hated tradesmen of the north. The states were all prepared on land. Though their fleet was strong and ready, party's spirit was exceedingly bitter, and the ruling party, well aware that the Prince of Orange was very popular with the land forces, had utterly neglected their army. On May 28, 1672, Raetor fought a great naval battle in Southward Bay, Sol Bay, against the Duke of York and Marshal destrees The French held aloof, pleased to see their Dutch and English destroy each other. The English suffered most, but as the Dutch withdrew to their own ports, the others claimed the victory. Meanwhile, Louis the fourteenth crossed the Rhine and threatened Amsterdam. The young prince of Orange alone seemed to rise to the occasion. or others were panic-stricken, sending embassies of submission to the haughty monarch, making preparations for a great fight by sea. William, with his miserly army, did his best, and aroused so strongly the feelings of the people, that amsterdam passing from dejection to despair and thence to reckless enthusiasm rose against the de wits and finally murdered both in the streets they had just before proclaimed William standholder of holland with powers unlimited and thus louis the xiv destroyed the proud republic though in so doing he had raised up the most formidable enemy he was destined to encounter his invasion did not prosper other nations began to take up the dutch cause Germans and Spaniards threatened the embarrassed French army in the provinces, so that in 1674, France was on the defensive on every side. After six years' trouble the peace of Nimwegen, 1678 secured and recognised the independence of the Dutch. This was very advantageous to their commerce, which shows a credible record during the time of William III, 1672-1702. to Although the wars depleted the exchequer, general wealth continued to grow. While at the close of the period of William III, the country's credit was good. The Netherlands and England, as well, were very favorably affected by the revolution of the Edict of Nantes. An Individual and personal mistake on the part of the French king. As a result of this act, the Protestant countries gained many desirable citizens, mostly the upper middle class. They brought to their new homes wealth, initiative and good blood. For this last transformation, we cannot credit William III of Orange, but we can debit Louis XIV. On the other hand, for the early days of william's career, we must give full praise to the man who saved his country from threatened extinction. Reading the descriptions of his exceedingly lofty traits of character and his extraordinary precociousness of mind seems but re-reading the lives of his four predecessors. As the type of the exact historian Macaulay may not satisfy modern requirements, but inasmuch as opinion of his own hero has not been reversed, these his eloquent words still be quoted in his description of William Third Sings Octavius, the world has seen no such instance of precious statesmanship. Skillful diplomatists were surprised to hear the weighty observations which at 17 the prince made on public affairs, as still more surprised to see the lad in situations in which he might have been expected to betray strong passion, preserve a composure as imperturbable as their own. At 18 he sat among the fathers of the commonwealth, grave, discreet and judicious as the oldest among them. At 21, in a day of gloom and terror, he was placed at the head of the administration. At 23, he was renowned throughout Europe as a soldier and a politician. He had put domestic factions under his feet. He was the soul of a mighty coalition, and he contended with honor in the field against some of the greatest generals of his age. Courage in the degree which is necessary to carry a soldier through a campaign is possessed, or might and a proper training be acquired by the majority of men. By courage like that of William is rare indeed. He was proved by every test, by war, by wounds, by painful and depressing maladies, by raging seas, by the imminent and constant risk of assassination, a risk which has shaken very strong nerves, a risk which severely tried even the adamantine fortitude of Cromwell. Yet none could even discover what that thing was which the Prince of Orange feared however much or however little these avowedly extraordinary princes of orange may have contributed to the national glory of the netherlands it is at least a fact that synchronously with their sway the power of the dutch reached world-wide proportions and then immediately on their extinction through the absence of male heirs this nation began to decline again the government fell to the states general the forty five years under this regime do not make a good a showing as the 22 earlier years of republican government, 1650-1672, to 1672, which followed William II. It will be remembered that the earlier period was characterised by commercial prosperity, but also by diplomatic and military weakness, so that the international prestige of Holland became insignificant. The second period retrogrades on the commercial side as well as on the political. It owes a remarkable, well-recognised downfall of the Dutch from the own position in world affairs which they had occupied during the 17th century. The tide turned rather suddenly and appears to have commenced very shortly after William III's death. The change in method of government in 1747, which came about because the provinces had sunk so low that all men began to wish for a dictator, placed the old officers of Captain and Admiral General on the whole Union, and stayed of the seven provinces in the hands of William IV of nassau A little later, these officers were declared hereditary in both male and female lines, the people seemed to think that, in any Prince of Orange, as of old, they ought to find a leader who would save them from the French and restore their prestige, but William the Fourth was only distantly related to the early illustrious branch of Nassau Orange. There was a possibility of his having been engendered out of the wonderful germplasm of the former princes, but it was certainly slight. Roughly speaking, and in the light of our present knowledge of hereditary, we might fairly say that the odds against it were greater than ten to one at any rate he was but moderately endowed intellectually according to all commentators his intentions were good and a number of reforms were instituted but it does not appear that any important consequence followed either during his own rule or during that of the subsequent regency of anne his consort the period of william the fourth 1747 to 1751 is however too brief to draw any definite conclusions After the death of the stateholder, the Regency was given to Anne, daughter of George II of England, a woman of a highly ambitious nature and imperious temper, who was not very successful in her headstrong and rather selfish aims. The Seven Years' War injured Dutch commerce, for their navy was no longer in a position to protect this important side of economic life. A shrewd diplomacy might have, at least, aided matters somewhat. But no one came forth to guide the fortunes of the little nation, now buffeted about among the more dominant powers after the unregretted death of Anne in seventeen fifty seven the states themselves exercised the power of stadholder until seventeen sixty six these years do not reflect glory or indicate improvement the commercial difficulties became greater than ever before in seventeen sixty three a crisis which had long been imminent brought down several of the leading mercantile houses of amsterdam followed by the usual panic and business stagnation By degrees, things righted themselves, but the Dutch merchants were obliged to content themselves with a business less influential and extended. The rule of William V saw no changes for the better. East Indian interests further declined. The diplomatic position continued weak and uncertain. The provinces quarrelled among themselves. The Orange Party quarrelled with the people, and the weak irresolute William V commanded no respect. The years 1766 to 1772 again brought failure to many of the old mercantile houses. By 1775 improvement was underway, but the Amsterdam War of Independence now worked serious injury to the Dutch. The period extended in a revolution. Holland became virtually a province of France. Thus the Netherlands take their humiliated exit at the close of the pre-Napoleonic era. The whole 18th century had been a series of gradual and constant setbacks, especially national and political though also commercial and economic yet the picture must not be overdrawn it must not be supposed that there was no wealth no industry remaining among the descendants of the doughty travellers pioneers of colonial enterprise their relative position in the world trade had declined other nations had arisen yet there was nothing of that poverty among the masses nothing of that picture of utter economic stagnation that characterised spain and portugal when their dynastic leadership was withdrawn There are several other facts indicating a general racial superiority of the people of Holland, and a certain credible if not exceptional ability to take care of themselves. The early prosperity of the cities, guilds, and corporations prior to the 15th century shows this, though the same was true in northern Spain, northern Portugal, and northern Italy. The obtainment by the people of the great privilege under Mary of Burgundy must be accredited to non-royal activity, but this charter remained in force only for a short time the progress under insignificant philip the handsome must be counted to the credit of classes other than royal and of course the modern prosperity of the netherlands since the close of the napoleonic era is proof that the people now have a very high average ability on the whole it appears strange that a sturdy country like holland should show a high correlation between its royalty and its political and economic prosperity but the two parallel columns compel such a conclusion a rapid survey of the broad tendencies from the fifteenth to the nineteenth century shows a strong personal influence of the last two Burgundian princes followed by a great rise under Charles v and his able regents until the bigotry and lack of wisdom of the second aided by the evil genius of alva and other agents of this busy mischief-maker turned the tide in a contrary direction A rise again took place under the five great princes of the House of Orange. This ceased rather suddenly after the death of William III, 1702, and did not again commence within the next hundred years, during which time royal leadership in Holland was conspicuously absent. The showing made by the people of the Netherlands in the direction of autonomous growth is not nearly so good as that of Great Britain during the same historical epoch. It would seem as if the Dutch race must be lacking, in certain qualities which are necessary to make statesmen. Surely their Hall of Fame is deficient in men of this calling, especially noticeable if compared with some other fields of activity. Art, for instance. Circumstances can hardly explain the deficiency, since the very forces that might be expected to bring forth political leaders were active in the Netherlands to an exceptional degree. They had an early start in civic self-government. Patriotism might well have been stimulated in the days of the Dutch Republic. The decline during the 18th century, with its national disruption, called loudly for great leaders, yet none appeared. On the other hand, a more mediocre frugality and an industry of a widely disseminated sort among the middle classes, save the country, for any such cankerous decay as took place in Spain, Portugal, Sicily or Greece, and in the 19th century brought forth a flourishing growth in the Netherlands, deep-rooted in the strength of the entire population. End of section 8